0: This is High Stakes from Gerard, Phillips, Kate, and Hancock.
1: Welcome back to High Stakes. I'm David Schifrin. What follows is a conversation between our CEO, David Gerard, and Dr. Eric Forrest, Vice Dean of Clinical Affairs and President of OSU Physicians at The Ohio State University. They're talking about how OSU, as an academic medical center, was able to move quickly and be a nimble organization during COVID-19 and then how that experience and work is informing the way they do things going forward into the future. So a couple of notes. First, the audio is a little bit wobbly at the beginning. Apologies for that. The internet is a funny thing. Secondly, as always, please subscribe to the podcast on your preferred system and also tell two friends or three friends four, Uh, wherever you're listening now has a share button. So use that to send an email or a text or whatever to a couple of people in healthcare who would find this valuable. We appreciate your help in getting the word out. So, all right, on to David and Dr. Forrest. Thank you. I'm uh, delighted to be joined this afternoon um, by Dr. Eric Forrest, who brings to us a great background from OSU and other organizations in helping organizations through significant change. And there's rarely been a time of more significant change than the one we're dealing with right now. So we're delighted to have Eric join us and talk a little bit about the change that he's led at OSU um, and a broader perspective on the principles that, that he's used to affect those change and hopefully that all of our listeners can use um, as they apply those to their organizations. Eric, thank you, Well,
0: Thank you, David, for having me.
1: W- would you start with just a little bit about your background and the and the situation at OSU?
0: Certainly. I am an otolaryngologist by, by training, and currently I am the Vice Dean of Clinical Affairs and the President of OSU Physicians, which is the practice plan at The Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center. How did you get to where you are? I, I guess in uh, it's always it's always an interesting journey, right, of how mm-hmm. you get to where you are, and I think a lot of it is just being at the right place at the right time and I went and got my MBA a few years ago, and I think it kind of launched me into some roles that I probably didn't anticipate doing, and uh, I've just always been one to be a physician advocate, and uh, because of that, I think I, I was placed into the role as president of the practice plan to be the voice of the physicians at the uh, medical center.
1: And as a physician, and as you've worked so long with physicians, I, I, I'm curious as you think about their needs and the need to affect change with them, do you have any guiding principles or sort of rules of the road that you always lean on as you think about helping them move through the changes that they need to make?
0: Well, when you talk about change in general, you know, physicians are scientists at heart. Uh, we've studied uh, data our entire careers, and we're used to assimilating a lot of different information and then coming up with an answer At the end of it. So if you're trying to get to a change, you really have to give them the why it's important and also support it with a lot of data and give them the reason why this is a good thing for them to consider. If you just tell them, this is what I want you to do that, that will never end up in a a good result. So really supporting it with data and facts and being very transparent about the approach and the why to the message is really key and critical.
1: And I'm curious, and as you deliver that information, what have you found the most effective way? Is it in person? Is it through data and spreadsheets? Is it a combination of both? What works best, do you think, with physicians today?
0: Well, you know, everybody everybody processes information differently, Mm -hmm. and you have to use multiple modalities when you're trying to do these type of change, but there is no substitute to communication, and my preferred method is always to meet them face-to-face if I can, go to a lot of large faculty meetings and just try to explain to them when they can actually see me. And I think that's the most effective method of delivering a message and delivering especially a why message. And if you're trying to get change, they have to be part of that process. They need to feel like they are helping and making that decision with you instead of being told what they're going to need to do.
1: Oh, that's interesting. So engagement and dialogue sort of work the problem through steps. So they feel like they feel like they're contributing to the solution.
0: Yeah, I mean, certainly their level of engagement is a lot different when you get them engaged in the early process of the decision making, even to the point where you can develop small work groups. And that is the focus of what they do is to advise us on where we should go with that. And when you get to that point, You're going to have much better buy-in at the end than if you wait too long to engage them in that process.
1: So investing that time is is an investment that pays off later.
0: Yeah, you know, it's it's you know the premise I like to think about is dialogue is the key to culture at any organization, and how we interact and speak to each other is the key for us functioning well. And Mm -hmm. that I, I always live by that, and I think we can never over communicate.
1: So that really takes us to uh, to OSU and where the world has been in the last 10 weeks, the last uh, 15 weeks. We don't have to go into detail about the extraordinary impact that COVID has had on health systems everywhere. AMCs have not been immune to that. Would love to hear just a little bit of background about where you found uh, yourself with OSU and how you, how you dived into the challenge.
0: Yeah, I think we were a little bit more fortunate than a lot of other academic medical centers in that it didn't hit Ohio until a little later in the process. And we got to learn mm-hmm. what happened out in Washington and New York City, uh, and quite honestly, in Italy and other parts of the world to help us uh, develop a plan of what we wanted to do. And, uh, you know, we certainly had our challenges. We were almost overrun in our ICUs. You know, we were getting to a point where we we're starting to worry a little bit about it and whether we needed to deploy physicians out of uh, their comfort zone and have them taking care and managing um, patients on a ventilator. And, and that, when that reality started to hit our faculty, it became much more urgent. But the planning process was the key, you know, making sure that we were ready for it when it did arrive.
1: And as, and as you as you readied yourself, how did you structure that work? What were you thinking about?
0: What we really focused on was developing work groups with very targeted defined roles of what they needed to do. And
1: physician work groups.
0: Position work groups. One was, what is the workforce going to do? You know, telehealth. And, and, you know, we also had some outside locations that we would use. Should we get overrun? Those type of things. But they, the whole idea is we had this, this cohort of I think it was 17 different work groups that were set up. And each of them had a very clear charter of what they needed to do. Uh, one defined role. And then we engaged the workforce at the front line to help us develop those plans. And then those were all brought up to a central group that uh, would make any of the critical decisions should they need to be made. And the key thing, you know, in, in the process is what leaders decided to do here was really to find out what they needed from us and not having us tell them what they needed to be doing. Mm-hmm. Here is a problem, you go solve it. What barriers do we need to remove for you in order for you to achieve those results? So did you say 17 different work groups? I believe it was 17. A, lot, a lot, lot of work groups.
1: Of, yes, but are, a lot are... of work
0: groups. And uh, every day they would have to submit uh, a progress report that uh, was managed centrally. And, and then any critical decisions were pushed up to a leadership team that would then enable them to occur in order for us to achieve the goals.
1: I imagine given the the pace of things that uh, were we were experiencing with COVID that these were fast moving groups.
0: Fast moving groups they met every single day. I don't know that you can do that under normal working conditions, although just kind of remember where we were at that time. We had people that you know, our clinical volume dropped below 50 percent, and we had people not doing surgical cases, and people were working from home, and it was just a unique setup, and you know, a perfect storm of things to happen where you could do this type of engagement on a daily basis and and get the results that you wanted.
1: And and to get maybe overly tactical, but I think it'd be helpful for folks to hear: as these work groups met, did they engage others as part of their work? So were they down? into the nursing stations, or were they down talking to other physicians and then doing their own due diligence and bringing that up, or was it really contained within that group?
0: No, there's a lot. I mean, you can imagine when you have that many work groups, there's a lot of overlap between them, and some of the work groups had to work together on some of the projects. One of the things I worked on was our, our the workforce deployment of our physicians. How would we staff the hospitalist role, and how would we best staff the ICUs, and having to coordinate that with uh, nursing staff and um, you know, respiratory therapists and all the other uh, services that needed to be provided to, for those physicians in and, 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 and those locations, we all had to work together. So I couldn't do any of that in isolation. We have to be able to cross over some of those work groups to, to get the uh, results we wanted.
1: And how were you able to, after, after you collect this great input and the work of the physicians, actually make decisions? Because when you make decisions, you're saying yes to some things and no to others. And sometimes that can be be difficult.
0: Yeah, I, I think a lot of the decisions we made were really focused on what is the right thing to do for the patients and what is the best thing we can do to serve our community. And that always was the guiding principle of any decision we would make. We did not We were a purpose maximizer, not a profit maximizer. We didn't care what it would cost, and we invested in things that we would never have done under normal circumstances because there's not that ROI at the end of it. But the ROI here was protecting the community and protecting Mm -hmm. our positions and doing the right and the rest of our staff because that was the key thing.
1: Is there a particular work group, 17, and a lot of overlap, a particular work group that you're proud of or you can point to and say, here's a good model or a good example of all that we were doing?
0: Telehealth was probably the one that I would focus on the most because Hmm. we were able to go from doing very few telehealth encounters. We had 2% of our faculty in the beginning of March doing any type of telehealth work. And now we're over 90% of our physicians doing it. We have done over 110,000 telehealth visits since the start of the COVID crisis. And to be able to ramp up that quickly was pretty amazing and and probably would have taken us three to four years to get to that point under normal conditions, but we were able to do it under this, uh, if you want to call it pressure. But we had to to shift the way we delivered care to our patients, not only to protect them and keep them out of our environment, but also to to protect our staff from having all the exposures. then you have the the, um, regulation changes that enabled us to be doing this and getting paid for it the same way we did for an in-person visit. And you put all those things together. We had a very motivated group to get these things done and Mm -hmm. uh, pretty amazing how we were able to work across business units. And it wasn't about, I own this, you own that it was, we're owning this together and collectively we'll make these results occur. That's so impressive.
1: So, how how did you network out that that training and that education throughout an organization the size size of OSU? I know it, you you led the work and you had a team of physicians who had helped you come to these conclusions. But how does it just get distributed throughout your organization?
0: Yeah, great question. Uh, it really is. It just all revolves around communication and getting out and speaking to. You know the, the faculty and getting them involved in the process, uh, there's a little bit of a motivator when they realize that their productivity just went down 70% if they're not able to do that. Yes. So you've got that little factor that now they're more of an incentive for them to be engaged in, in that work. And we were able to keep our clinical productivity above 60% just by adding the telehealth portion wow. to it. But it was a lot of education that we had to go out and we, we employed a, a lot of our IT educators to go out and, and speak to the physicians. It was a lot of developing communication. It was developing videos, short videos that they would actually take the two or three minutes to watch, tell them how to do that. We had providers doing video visits that had never even done one in their entire careers and never were trained face-to-face and all they did was watch a video And then click on it and start doing it and it it really the the ability of that team to push out that information in really less than a two-week period of time was pretty amazing but it it all goes back to the key critical uh, point and that's you have to have good communication and we had to tell them why it was really important for them to do this at this time
1: and and now that and, and now that you've done it and that the telehealth apparently has been successful does it stick does it go back is it a thing for the moment or is it a thing long term how, how are you thinking about it
0: well you know I, I i what i've been telling everybody is the the worst thing we could do at the end of this is to go back to the way we did things in the past it would be the biggest mistake we could ever make learn from this lesson every crisis creates an opportunity And I'm not just talking about clinical delivery. I'm talking about in the way we operate and interact with each other. Take the lessons we have learned over these past eight to 10 weeks and incorporate that into the new normal future uh, because otherwise you've wasted a tremendous opportunity. And it's not just what we want. It's what what do the patients want? What is the voice of the customer telling us right now? Mm -hmm. There's still a large percentage of them, you know, maybe 40, 50% that are still afraid to come back, whether that's a three month window or a six month window, they don't feel comfortable uh, going out into our our healthcare facilities right now. So we need to meet them where they're at and that's in their homes. And I I think the key thing uh, that I tell everybody is in the past, they would tell you eight to 10% of all your encounters being video is an aggressive target. That, That would be something six months ago that people were saying. We're saying 25 to 30% of everything we do going forward has to be done through a telehealth technology, Uh and that is what our patients are going to want, and that's what we should be doing. We don't need to bring them in every single time for a face-to-face visit just because you can bill for it at a higher level. That's not the right way to treat our patients.
1: Well, and we found through our own research that once patients have tried telehealth,
0: they tend to like it.
1: Not necessarily for every visit that they that they need to make, but it's been really well received. I'm I'm curious on the physician side, is it equally well received?
0: Yeah, from the from the provider standpoint, I, I've done a number of these over the past uh, couple of months, and and they're really enjoyable. At, at first, you're like, I I don't know if I could do this, but right. you know they teach you in medical school that about ninety percent of a diagnosis you can make by history alone, and if you really think of it that way. You know if you spend the time and ask the right questions you're going to get the answer that you need most of the time and there's you know and if and it's no really no different than a face-to-face encounter you come up with a treatment plan you implement it and if it's not working then they come back in
1: well congratulations on that i know that's a that's a heavy lift but you said something that that was interesting that i I want to come back to you talked about history being a a key to diagnosis and, and I would argue that, that what you're able to do with 17 work groups is evidence of a history also of cultural building that you've been doing. You don't just turn that on overnight. There's an expectation of, of how something like this can work and, and work successfully. So I'm curious, going back pre-COVID, back in the ancient pre-COVID days, how, how did you build a culture that allowed this kind of swift movement among physicians?
0: Uh, you know, I, I think we've always really tried to push the, the communication side of things and we try to keep people informed of, of how we do things. I think we had gone through some pretty major changes over the past few years that mm-hmm. helped us in that process. If we hadn't gone through some of those and people weren't used to change, then it would have been much more difficult to do it. But as I said before, it, it really, this was a true perfect storm coming together. And you, you had very motivated people that not only were they trying to, you know, preserve the volume of patients that we were seeing, but there was a real sense of urgency that we had a commitment to the community to provide a service to protect them. And that's what I, I think motivated a lot of them to, to do this and do it in a very quick way.
1: And and I would imagine, too, and tell me if I'm wrong, but there we found a number of organizations. There's a hunger within the organization for leadership. And when things get chaotic, there's a there's a great desire for some clear direction from leaders about what to do and how to do it. I'm, I'm curious if you could talk a little bit about. How you demonstrated that, and I'm I'm being very practical and tactical here. Like, what were your days like? Seventeen work groups, a lot of interaction. How do you spend that time? What's the how, how does that manifest for you?
0: Uh, yeah, it was a lot of long hours, and it was a lot of long days, and it was really a couple yeah. months of no, no days off at all. It was weekend meetings, and it was they everything changed on a daily, sometimes more than daily basis. That we had to keep each other informed of it. The work groups were so critical though, because they employed the frontline staff that we would get immediate feedback as to what was happening at that time. And you talked about leadership. I I think one thing we've also recognized from this is it created opportunities for some some reach uh, goals or, or some challenges for some of our younger leaders that really had a chance to step up and have totally shined under this circumstance. Mm-hmm. And I can see their role in the future really changing because the way they stepped up. So we're gonna take advantage of the people that demonstrated this ability to produce and execute and, and get the change that was really needed. And I think that is an important factor we can't forget is pay attention to was who was able to step up and take charge under these circumstances because some Some don't. Some will fall back and others will step forward. And that will give you a good idea of who you can rely on in the future to lead.
1: Nice. Well, so let's
0: let's
1: talk about that a little bit. What of all the changes that you've made or even thinking about making, what's what's what does stick? And what what was the the right thing for the moment, but is no longer going to be something you want to continue? Are you thinking about it that way? This stays and this doesn't or are you there yet?
0: Yeah. Well, I mean I can go back to the telehealth uh, option. So now we we've, we've transitioned these work groups away from a surge planning to a recovery plan and you know, we have a smaller number of them and it's all about how do we recover from this you know mentally challenging and financially challenging two months that we just went through. Yeah. And that's the goal of the recovery teams and the work groups are continuing but the focus is a little bit different the focus is how how do we what is our new normal what are we going to be doing in the future and a lot of it does incorporate the telehealth when you have telehealth you don't need a facility to deliver that care so can we exceed our capacity that we did before if we can get the face to face visits up to where they were and then implement 25 to 30% more volume on top of it with telehealth then we end up being in a better place than we were before yeah. because now you're at 125 130 percent of your capacity that was never there before and plus your patients like it better uh, because you save them about two and a half hours on average for per encounter by doing it by video than making them drive in so those are some of the, the these work groups those, these rapid improvement teams if you want to look at them that way that's one thing i don't think we ever want to lose again I think gone are those days where we get together in a room with 40 or 50 leaders around the organization and it's an hour and a half PowerPoint presentation. That's not how you get a lot of things done. Let's streamline the number of meetings, what was effective and what wasn't. And I I think, you know, developing focused teams to work on a project is really what we learned from this process. And getting the right people on those work teams and not worrying about who gets the credit and who gets the financial impact of it. It's really about the entire organization benefiting from it. And we really functioned as one medical center as opposed mm. to the typical siloed organization that you see at um, a lot of academic medical centers. And I, I think, you know, I feel very strongly about this, and we, we do talk about this a lot. Whoever gets this formula right, will be the ones who succeed. You know, it's what, what do you keep? What do you eliminate? Yeah. Where do you save costs? Where do you spend money? That is really the, the key. And it's really not about cut, 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 because that's not the way you get out of it. It's right. spending in the right areas. And really the way you get out of this is to spend your way out of it, to create the volume and grow your market share and by doing that you have to engage your frontline staff because they're the ones that are going to get you there and I, I think that is the key thing is that the people process is really the heart of how you get things done we can't forget that behind every decision we make there is a patient but behind every decision you make as a leader as a staff member or a physician or a provider that you've affected
1: so a lot of change and more change to come
0: yeah i mean you know the old saying if you don't like change you'll like irrelevance even worse so (laughs) or even less because that is the reality we're going to be in an ever-changing environment i think for the next two to three years if we ever stop i think this isn't this isn't the first pandemic we're going to go through in our careers i I really don't think that's the case at all i think we're going to be dealing with this one and then there'll be others and there's just going to be significant changes in healthcare in general for the next several years. And you have to accommodate to it and really be there for your patients and know, understand what the market needs are gonna be. And mm-hmm. if, you, if you can't do change, you will not survive. And there will be health systems that do not survive this. There'll be a lot of independent practices that will not survive this. And you have to be ready to, to meet those needs.
1: And am I right in thinking that that it's a particular challenge for AMCs, for academic medical centers, for whom change is, it seems to be particularly hard. There's a variety of agendas and missions that are important that sometimes slow the organization down.
0: Yeah, certainly, uh, you know, we had those issues prior to COVID as well, where where do we ever think we're going to be able to change enough or pivot to meet the current cost structure of healthcare that needed to be provided, and AMCs are strained because of that. You know they're, you know they they have the different missions as you spoke of, and, and training and educating the new workforce is one of those. And you have to be able to do it the right way. We can't afford to have academic medical centers fail, because right. then it's going to train the the, the who's going to train the future physicians, the future nurses and all the other healthcare providers, those are done at academic medic- medical centers and they, they have a critical role, but we can't be delegated to just providing quaternary care and not routine care either, because then you're not training people in the right way. But you're right, being able to be, the, the words you never associate with an academic medical center, nimble, flexible, you know, right. you know change agents, those just don't normally go together, they're so, you know, opposite of each, the way that most academic medical centers work, very structured, rigid. You know, more it's, it's more of an archaic method of delivering care, or not the care side of it, but you know the way that we we work as opposed to some of the more other health systems that don't have the other missions that we have, and we feel that uniqueness is what helped us through this COVID crisis. We were able to create new treatment options, new testing options, and a lot of things that we were able to implement because we are an academic medical center and not just a care provider institution. And I I think that is an important message of of what we can do when when we work together. But academic medical centers of the future will need to change. We can't continue to rely on a model that's 100 years old of how we function and train the future care providers. We all will change because of this, and if we don't, they could go out of business. And and I, it and I feel that's the point that most people will need to grasp is, even an academic medical center, that mission if it's not funded, will fail. No money, no mission. If you can't support yourselves, the government can't continue to pump dollars into a failing system, and they are going to contract, and then we're going to have fewer. Medical academic medical centers, fewer medical schools to train our future workforces.
1: Last question. This is a great conversation, and I think will be so valuable. Any any practical headlines for the folks who are listening? One, two, three. Always do. Never do. Be sure to remember. Would love to hear that.
0: Yeah, I, I think probably the most important thing that you know, I've learned out of this process is the value of listening to and trusting the people that you work you have the privilege to work and lead you know i I think you can't underestimate the power of leadership when you empower everybody underneath you to do what is the right thing to do and the key as i said earlier of how the key to any culture within an organization is the dialogue how you treat each other as you mm-hmm. communicate, when you pass each other in the hallway, what what are your emails like? What are the messages that you're sending out? Keeping them positive, not, not hiding anything. You have to be upfront and transparent about it. But that messaging is so key and critical. And then that level of trust that you build over time is how you get things accomplished. It's how you... Um, earn the right to invoke some changes is because they learn to trust you because you have a track record of doing the right thing. And that all the values that we live by, and we always talk about, it's easy. They're easy to say, but you have to live them every single day. You know, they, you know, I, I have my, what I call my hit list, the honesty, integrity, and trust. And if I violate any of those, I, I always feel that it's been a bad day for me.
1: I love the the hit list, honesty, integrity, and and trust. And trust. And, and I'll, I'll add just as, as a commentary that w- w- what you've been able to do also requires an investment of time, which you've mentioned several times here. This is not something that could be done with the with the flip of a switch or in the moment when you need it, it's like an umbrella. you got to have it before it starts raining. And so I, I know the work you've been able to accomplish at OSU um during COVID actually follows an investment you've made for a long time to to get you here. So there's an yeah, investment I, of time to do that.
0: Yeah, you know, I, I think that is that in my opinion, that's my role is to give them the time that they need. And you know, as I said, communication is always the key and being very clear in your communications. The clarity is really important uh, in how you communicate with people.